Good morning. How you guys doing this morning? Good. Barely awake, a little chilly. Me too, me too. My name is Jerry, if you don't know. I'm one of the pastors here at the Carmel campus, and uh, so glad to have you here with us this morning. So if you were here a few weeks ago, you, you heard me say this, but my wife and I, just a few weeks back, got to share the opportunity of taking our three boys who are 11, 9, and 7 to their very first Colts game. It was our first Colts game as a family. I know I shared some of you, some of this with you, but here's what you need to know. That was a gift from some people at the church where we served at before, and they said, you know, we know you're going up to Indy. We know you're huge Colts fans. We want to give this to you as a gift to bless your family, and so pick a game that you want to go to. So I was trying to be strategic. I thought, okay, well, Andrew Luck's hurt, so let's go a little later in the season. It'd be nice if that could line up with fall break. And if we could get a divisional opponent, that would be great. Like, there would be a lot of electricity in the room. So I chose October 22nd against the Jacksonville Jaguars. And we were so excited. We told our boys in July that we're going to go to our first Colts game. And they were, they were so excited. Our seven-year-old, every seven to ten days, is the game today? Is the game today? Is the game today? Well, finally, it came time for the big game. And we put on all of our gear And we went downtown and we parked a mile away and we hiked in and we got to our seats right at kickoff. And we were so excited. I looked down the aisle at my family and I I just was smiling. I thought, this is going to be so awesome. And what we didn't know was it was going to be a historic day for the Colts. And many of you know this, right? It was the first time since December 26, 1993, the first time in 24 years that what? Zero points. They laid an egg laid an egg. And here I am with my family. Yay. All right. This is not that great. Well, okay. All right. It was 20 to nothing by halftime. I could see the writing on the wall. We had no offense, little to no defense, and my boys are begging for cotton candy. And so I said, I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. If we, I will buy you cotton candy. And if we are down by 20 or more at the start of the fourth quarter, we're going to go home. They weren't buying it. I bought cotton candy, but we stayed through the whole game. We have one of the greatest field goal kickers of all time, Adam Vinatieri. Never even stepped onto the field, people. So we, I just sat there, and all throughout the third and fourth quarter, I kept looking down the aisle at my wife like, you know, the wise thing would be to leave before all these other people leave too. And I just, can I be honest with you, what I really wanted more than anything I wanted the satisfaction of being in my living room to turn the game off and to throw the remote at the couch and just walk out of the room. I just wanted, I didn't even have that. I just had to sit there and like, oh, 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 again, right? It was just so, so painful. And I'm sure you've had an experience like that before, right? There's this thing on the calendar that you're looking forward to, and it it is just going to change your life. And maybe it was a party or a game or a date night, a conference or a vacation, and you just couldn't wait for it to get there. But when time arrived, you started to realize that you would rather be anywhere doing anything else than this one thing that you had been looking forward to. And you know, when it's a football game or a first date, you just, all you know, you just have to survive the next few hours and I get to go back to where it's safe. But what about when that happens in your spiritual life? What about when you're following and you're seeking God you're following Jesus, you know that his ways are best and and his ways are right and good? And so you start to follow him, but before you realize it, he just keeps dragging you to all these places that make you feel uncomfortable. And you don't want to be there, and you want to leave, and you just realize he's blowing up your comfort zone. And every time you try to pull the plug to walk away, he says, no, 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 no. I just want you to sit here and look around, because this, this is training for what's next, right? 
And if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you know that's just kind of what following him, it's like, it's not that he's brutal, he's trying to build us up and make us strong, and we just have to sit through those seasons of life. Well, if you can relate, you're in good company, because I think that's what his disciples, those first few men that followed him, I think that's what they felt like all the time. They never knew what the next day would bring. And today we're going to look at a story from Matthew chapter 16, an event in their life. But get this, they were riding a wave of momentum that none of them anticipated. I mean, we looked at this last week. Jesus went and did a variety of miracles and the crowds were growing and Jesus was so popular. Their rabbi was a rock star, right? Everybody wants to have that friend that is just, everybody wants to know, but you know them a little bit better than everybody else. That's what Jesus's disciples were experiencing. It was a good time to be a follower of Jesus. And then just like that, he says, I tell you what, guys, we're gonna go out of town. And he takes them to a place, the last place that they wanted or expected to be. And I, I'm guessing that while they were there, when they got there, they're looking around saying, what, what are we doing here? Can we just go back to where, this is crazy, Jesus. But here's what's, here's what's wild. He takes them to this place and he makes a bold proclamation that they would never forget. It would shape the rest of their lives. And here's what's wild. 2,000 years later, it has everything to do, everything to do with why you and I are sitting here today. Now, isn't that crazy? So if you want to follow along, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. In the Bibles around the room, that's on page 687. Now, this is a familiar story. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You've probably heard bits and pieces of this before. You could probably quote some of it back to me. But let me tell you what's going on in Matthew chapter 16 when we get to this season of Jesus's life. He's about three, almost three years into his three and a half, four-year ministry. So he's nearing the end, and the crowd's are massive. His popularity is at an all-time high. He couldn't go anywhere without there being a crowd. In fact, if you read in the Gospels, if you're tracking along in his story, it says there was a crowd, there was a crowd, there was a crowd. Well, we know on two separate occasions that those crowds may have been as large as 10 to 15,000 people coming to hear him teach without a microphone, without lights and sound coming to have him perform a miracle just to get a glimpse, just to see what they could see of Jesus. So that's happening. On top of that, John the Baptist, one of Jesus's friends, the guy that baptized Jesus, has just been executed. He's been beheaded, and he had a lot of followers. And some of those followers are starting to follow Jesus. Some of them don't know what to do now. There's rumors circulating. And on top of that, there were lots of other people that didn't know what to do with Jesus. Some wanted him killed, some believed he was a phony. And so at that point in time, when the crowds were coming from everywhere to see the show, Jesus says, guys, follow me. We're going out of town. And they go to the last place they would imagine. And this is where we pick up the story. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it starts off like this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you've been following along in Jesus' story, this is what he does. He's always moving from one town to the next, right? In fact, a few chapters back, he chooses 12 men and he sends them out two by two to a bunch of different places. That's just what Jesus did. And so this week, it just happens to be that it's Caesarea Philippi. But here's what you need to know about Caesarea Philippi. If you look on this map here, you'll notice it's all the way up in the top. It wouldn't even fit on the map that we've been using for this series, okay? It's 120 miles to the north 
of Jerusalem, which was like the capital of everything that was near and dear to the Jewish people. It was 20 miles north to the town of Capernaum, which is where Jesus set up his home base. We're talking way far to the north. But here's what you need to know about Caesarea Philippi that's the most important thing. It was a pagan, non-Jewish territory. The people there were strange. The people there did weird things. They worshiped strange gods. And for us, I mean, I'm trying to think, what would be the best comparison for us? Think of like West Lafayette. The people wear strange dark colors. They yell, boiler up. And you're like, I don't even know. What's that mean? What's that mean? Show me a banner, right? What are you talking about? They're just weird, strange people. Now, we tease about that, right? But in all seriousness, going to Caesarea Philippi, it wasn't like going to the other side of the tracks. This was like going to the edge of the world. You would not want to go to this place. And this is where Jesus is bringing his disciples. Now, in the Old Testament, we learn that this place was significant for Israel for all the wrong reasons. For starters, in 1 Kings 12, we learn that when the nation of Israel had a civil war and they were divided into two, the king of the north built a golden calf near this region of Caesarea Philippi. And he led his people in worshiping that calf. Now, this was the second time this had happened in Israel's history. God did not like it the first time. He did not like it the second time. And so if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, you're like, we don't want to go to that place because ain't nothing good happening there, right? Now, not only that, but the Canaanites, who were the enemies of the Israelites, they had built a sanctuary to their god of fertility named Baal in this region. Okay, the Canaanites and the Israelites did not like one another. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know that Baal was always tripping up the Israelites. They were tempted to worship him instead of worshiping the one true God. But get this, as it turns out in this region of Caesarea Philippi, it was also the location of one of the major tributaries of the Jordan River. And if you were to go there today, this is what this place looks like. It's called Banyas. And you'll notice this stream, all, right, all this water, it used to flow out of the mouth of that cave way back there. But in 1837, the cave collapsed. The spring now comes out from underneath it. But here's why this is so important. Because in the ancient Near East, people believed that water came from the gods. So a large water source like this was believed to be where a fertility god would live. And the Canaanites believed that in the winter, their god Baal would climb down into the mouth of that cave and he would sleep there until the springtime. So the entrance to this cave was the entrance to the underworld. The Jewish historian Josephus records that this cave was a mysterious and seemingly bottomless pit because every time they tried to measure how deep it was, they would throw rope down it. They could never get to the bottom. Now, on top of that, this place became known as the gates of hell. Doesn't that sound like a great place to take your family on vacation? And the Canaanites believed that this is where Baal would go and rest for the winter, and they needed to, to draw him out. They needed to get his favor, so they would go here and they would offer sacrifices in this cave. And you know what they would do? They would take babies, little babies, and toss them down into this cave, believing that that would make this God, Baal, happy. Now, I have four kids. That's one of the most bizarre and disturbing things I have ever heard can you imagine, are you starting to see why this is not a place you would want to go? You don't want to be here. Well, not only had the Israelites been there, not only had the Canaanites been there, but over the course of times, 
over the course of time, the, the, the Greeks and the Romans had come there, and they had made this place a sanctuary to their gods. And it was called Panius. It was named after the Greek god Pan, who was half goat and half man. And, and if you were to look at this picture, this is what it's believed this was looked like in Jesus' day. And just look around, because this is what you can see. This, this is all the different places you could go to worship a god here. There was the Temple of Augustus. There was the Grotto of Pan. There was the Court of Pan and the Nymphs. If you look really closely in the, into that rock wall, there are windows that are carved out. They're called niches. And people would take statues and they would put them in these windows and they would worship all these different gods. That was called the rock wall of the gods. There was the temple of Zeus, the court of Nemesis, the tomb temple of the sacred goats, and the temple of Pan, and the dancing goats. And it's believed that that's what this place looked like when Jesus went there to visit in the first century. And for some reason, with all of this pagan worship going on, while the crowds were swelling back in Israel, Jesus says, I need you guys to come with me. We're going on a trip, and this is where he brings them. And in Matthew 16, 13, he asks his disciples this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now that title, Son of Man, is an Old Testament title for the Messiah. And it's the favorite title that Jesus would use to talk about himself, kind of to hint at the fact that he was the Messiah. He wasn't speaking in code here to his disciples. They knew what he was asking. He takes them on this long journey to this weird place and says, hey, just curious. I know that there's been lots of people following us around. I know that people are saying all kinds of things. Who do people say I am? What are you guys hearing? And look at what they say in verse 14. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, I don't know about you, that just seems like a weird answer to me. Because John the Baptist and Jesus were the same age. They knew each other. John baptized Jesus. They had talked before, and he's, John's now dead, but for some reason, people didn't have very good theology, and they thought, oh, well, I guess that guy, that's now John. They both do amazing things. Not to mention, some said Elijah, some said Jeremiah. Well, these were two Old Testament prophets that had lived hundreds, hundreds of years before Jesus had ever walked the earth. And so basically the best answer that Jesus' disciples could give him to this question as they stand in this place is, well, they all think you're someone important that's already died. I mean, that's just kind of a strange answer. So Jesus looks back at them and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? I mean, you guys know me better than anybody else. You guys travel with me. We've hung out. We've prayed together. You know different things about me. What do you think? And Simon Peter, pay attention to that name, Simon Peter, the guy with two names. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Now, if you don't know anything about Peter, I love this guy. He reminds me so much of me because he never gets it right. He is always saying something and saying, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. He never seems to get it right. And here he just blurts out, oh, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And I just picture the other disciples being like, looking at him and looking at Jesus and saying, I don't know. He's either a heretic or a genius. I think we're getting ready to find out. And think about where he blurts this out. That's a very exclusive statement. You are the Christ. They're standing in a very inclusive place where people came to worship all kinds of gods. You are the son of God. Well, look at how Jesus responds in the next verse. Peter, you're so dramatic. Don't be such a brown noser. 
tone it down a little bit, man. Somebody's going to hear you. That's not what he says, and that's not how he says it. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Interesting, this was not revealed to you by man. Well, we know that because all the other people, no one could figure out who Jesus was. And when Peter blurts that out, he's just saying, this is who you have to be. Can you imagine what it would be like to be Peter to blurt this out? And Jesus looks at you and says, ding, 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 finally, one of you guys gets it right. In fact, Jesus is so pleased with Simon's answer. Look at what he does. Next verse, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It was such a good answer that Jesus changed his name. Wouldn't that be cool if Jesus said, you got it right, you don't have to worry about being Jerry anymore, you can be, I don't know what that name would be for me, right? But he changed your name. I mean, if I were Peter, I'd be feeling pretty good about myself. But then he says this, on this rock, I will build my church. Have you ever wondered what Jesus is talking about here? Because there's lots of different people that believe lots of different things about that statement. I did a little research this week and I learned if you take the, the Greek and you look at some of the words that are used, it would read something like this. You are Petros. We would say Peter. It just means a stone. And on this Petra, on this large rock, I will build my church. I think in essence what Jesus is saying is, Simon, your new name is Petros, Peter, which means a stone. And I can use a stone like you to build with. But what you just said about me, who you think I am is the Petra, the cornerstone. And I'm gonna build my church on that. Now, some of you maybe are like me. I grew up Catholic. And many Catholics believe that in this interaction, what Jesus, he's looking at Peter and saying, I'm gonna build my church based on you, Peter. Well, that's not what we believe here at Genesis. I don't believe that to be true. I think what Jesus is saying is, Peter, that was such a good answer. I'm gonna build on what you just said. I'm gonna build something amazing. In fact, if you fast forward uh, to 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, Peter talks about this. He says, as you come to him, meaning Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Peter knew it was all built on Jesus. But think about this, all this talk about rocks and stones, where are they standing? They're standing in front of a giant rock face riddled with idols. They're standing at the mouth of a cave and maybe Jesus is making a point here to say on this rock where we're standing right now, right here, on this rock where all these people flock to interact with their false gods. This rock representing the paganism and the ungodly values of this culture. On this rock right here, I will build my church. Now it's interesting to note that this is the first time that Jesus talks about the church. The Greek word is ekklesia. And it literally means a called out assembly. It's used 114 times at other places in the New Testament. This is the first time Jesus uses it. And get this, when he uses this word ecclesia, he's referring to the whole church, meaning the entire assembly of believers that would follow him throughout the ages. He was talking about me, he was talking about you. And he wasn't saying, hey, Peter, good answer. Let's break some ground and build a new campus right here. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying, hey guys, did you just hear what your buddy said? Because I'm gonna build an eternal, worldwide assembly of people that are committed to following me as the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus goes one step further. He says something that is so bold that these guys, I'm sure they would never forget it. Look at what he says in verse 18. And the gates of hell, some translations say the gates of Hades, will not overcome it. There he stands at a place right over there known as the gates of hell, the entrance to the underworld, the realm of the dead. I think Jesus is trying to make a point. Have you guys ever been to a ribbon cutting ceremony when somebody opens something important, they cut the ribbon? Remember when Ikea opened a few weeks ago and everybody was excited? I mean, we came from Southern Indiana and we knew that Ikea and Fishers was a big deal. We had heard about it years ago. And weeks leading up to it, everybody was excited. People camped out. There was all kind of hype. They camped out in the rain. They wanted to get into the building. But before anybody was allowed to get into the building to shop, what did they do? They hosted a ribbon cutting ceremony and everybody cheered and celebrated because now there wasn't just a building, but that building served a purpose. It was open to the public. And, and as I have studied this passage over the last two weeks, I think this was the ribbon cutting ceremony for the church that Jesus wanted to begin. He took his 12 disciples away from everybody that was cheering them on and he took them to the most unlikely place imaginable. And he promised to start an eternal organization called the church that hell itself couldn't stop. It would never even slow down. And while he didn't actually cut a ribbon, he made a bold proclamation that has everything to do with why you got out of bed and came here this morning. Think about this. Regardless of what you believe to be true about Jesus, right now, look around. You are sitting with an assembly of people from a variety of backgrounds. It's all different ages and stages of life. Some you know, some you don't. And it's not just happening at Genesis and Carmel and Noblesville. It's happening all over this world. And just like us, people gather together to sing to Jesus. They pray to Jesus. They declare that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. They baptize just like we do into his name. We don't have the corner on the market here. This isn't ours. This is, this is his. So I think it's safe to say that his idea of the church has survived. But there's a problem. Because somewhere along the way, Jesus said, you're going to be an assembly of people. You're going to be sent out into the world to go. And somehow, I don't know, and I, I am guilty of this. I trade that vision in for church being a time and a place on a Sunday morning. I go to church. We gather for church. And I think that's a problem. A few weeks ago when we were at the football game, first thing I did when we got there, I started posting pictures on social media, sent some pictures to family and friends. We're here. Well, about halftime in the third quarter, I started getting, oh man, you should leave. Yeah, no kidding. And I started getting a comment that showed up in my thread, text messages. The guy that bought me the tickets, this is what he says. He calls me the next day and said, well, at least you got to enjoy Lucas Oil Stadium. And the first couple of times people said it, I was like, yeah, that's cool. But then I started to get really angry. You know why? Because I cheer for the Colts whether they play at home or away. And they played a whole lot better at the RCA Dome if we're gonna be honest, right? I didn't go to the game. I didn't take my family to, to, 
Ooh, what a nice building. I was cheering for the people down on the field. Can we just be honest for a moment? And I will be the first one to say, this is me. Do you ever do that with church? Do you ever get more excited about a time and a place on Sunday morning than the actual people that we're called to do this with? And if the songs are good and the sermon isn't too boring, if the coffee's hot and the bagels are good and the kids are happy and they get me out of there on time, then church was good today. Guilty. And I think that's a big problem because that's not what Jesus said when he stood there on that day. One of my favorite memories from the Colts game a few weeks ago, we were getting slaughtered. And every time there was a third down, the announcer would come on and say, it's third down, and you're supposed to get up and cheer. And I just sat there like, it's going to be first down real soon, right? But my son, Ben, every time, jumped up and would clap, and he would cheer because he just was cheering his team on defense, defense. And when you go to a football game, that's exactly what you were supposed to do. But I think if we are not careful we could start doing that on Sunday mornings. We turn on the news and we hear about how dark and how depressing our world is because there's been another mass shooting. There's unrest all over the world. There's another terror attack. And and guys, I have four kids, okay? I'm praying that Jesus comes back before kickoff today. Please, Lord, come now. I'm ready. I think we're ready. I'm not making light of any of that. But if we take this idea that Jesus started as the church and we say, oh, it's a time and a place on Sunday morning, then I'll tell you what, let's just quit singing songs and let's just get together and chant defense, defense, defense. And let's just hope that it gets better. But this week, I have, as I have read this story, I look at it and think, oh man, I gotta change my perspective on this thing called the church. He traveled to the gates of hell. He traveled to this place and he knocked on Satan's door to prove a point that he didn't come to play defense against the powers of this world. He proclaims the whole reason the church exists as an assembly of people is to go on the offense. Not to be playing like this, but to be charging and going. And when I think of it like that, well, I start to reshape how I read some of his teachings. As I was reading this this week, I thought, gosh, so what does that mean when Jesus says this? If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just chosen his 12. And a lot of times we read the Sermon on the Mount like Jesus is just talking to anybody that would listen. That's not what happened. He's looking at the 12 men that he has just chosen, the 12 men that he took with him to Caesarea Philippi. And this is what he says. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The problem with making church a time and a place on Sunday mornings, you know what we do with salt and light? We take salt and we rub it in people's wounds and say, you're not doing that right. And we take light and we shine it in their eyes and we're like, what's the matter with you? Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're the salt of the earth. Everywhere you go, you should be flavoring the world with the love of God. You're the light of the world. 
Take this light that I'm giving you and take it to the darkest places. Take it to the places where people worship weird things. Take it to the places where people don't even believe I am who I say I am. Take the light and go. Are you starting to get the idea that Jesus didn't create church to be a place where we, become, where we could come to learn to play defense? He's created the church to be a people that would always go into the world and reach others based on the confession of who he is and what he's all about. And if, guess what? If no one had ever done that, we wouldn't even be here right now. We wouldn't even have a reason to get together because they would have never fulfilled what Jesus had told them to do in the first place. All week long, I'm trying to think, how do you finish this sermon? What do you say? What do you say to drive this home? And then I realized, or maybe Jesus helped me realize, I don't have to say anything because he said everything that we need to hear. In Matthew 28, this is known as the Great Commission. Uh, uh, you've heard this before, right? After his resurrection, he says these words. He's been resurrected from the dead for 40 days. And look at what he says. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now, if a guy predicts his death and dies and comes back from the dead, and he says, look, there's nothing like me anywhere. Okay, that's fair. But I want us to read together what he says next. You've heard this before. This isn't new material, but let's read this together. Therefore, okay, time out. <laughs> Standing at the gates of hell, people, come on. Give me some energy here. Therefore, disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. You're going to hear that passage a lot because we talk about disciple making here because that's why Genesis exists. Our mission is to help people find their way back to God. But when they find their way back to God, we want to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. That's why my life has changed. That's why your life has changed. So please mark your calendar for Saturday, December the 2nd. Come to that Multiply workshop. None of us have this figured out. We are all in this together. This isn't for the pastors and the super spiritual people. This is for the people. And if we don't take this, the rest of the world isn't gonna get it. This is why we encourage everyone here to serve, to serve, not just to do a task, but to serve people. Jesus came to serve. So if you're part of Genesis and you're not serving what are you waiting for? And don't just serve here, but serve out there. And if you don't know where to start, find me or Steve. We'd love to help you take a next step. So that's what happens in Matthew 28. In Mark chapter six or 16, we get a different version of the same story. That after Jesus gave this great commission to go into all the world, look at what Mark 16, 19 says. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. You know why he sat down at the right hand of God? What do you do after a long day's work? You sit down. Your work is done. His work was finished. But I love verse 20. This hit me square in the eyes this week. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them. His work was done, but when his people worked, guess what Jesus did? He worked right alongside them. And amazing things began to happen. And in the book of Acts, it says they turned the world upside down. This thing called the church that was born at the gates of hell was on the move and it was never going to stop. And in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this was written by Luke, the same Luke that wrote the gospel of Luke. You've heard this passage before. Look at what Jesus says. 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Carmel, in Noblesville, in West Lafayette, you'll be my witnesses at work. You'll be my witnesses at home, everywhere you go and everything you do. Think about this. The God of heaven, Jesus, left heaven and came to this earth in the flesh. He came. The Holy Spirit that hovered over all creation in Genesis 1, chapter 2, or chapter 1, verse 2, hovers over creation. The Holy Spirit came to live inside of us. And Jesus says, you, you're the church, you go. You don't stand still. The gates of hell cannot stop you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. Thank you so much. I am thankful that you took those men on a long journey to a random place that no doubt made them feel very awkward. And I thank you for that bold proclamation because when you made that proclamation, you were thinking about me and you were thinking about us. You were thinking about so much more than those disciples could ever imagine. And you invite us and all of our mess to be the church, not to go to church, but to be the church. And I just, Father, would you help us if if we just grasped onto this here at Genesis? If we could celebrate and worship you like crazy on Sunday, but this would be a celebration of everything that's happened during the week, would you help us to be the kind of church that would be on mission about making disciples and helping people find their way back to God? And those are all great words. We wanna be what you want us to be about. And when we are frightened, when we are scared, when we are down, would you let it ring in our ears? We are the church because you've called us to be the church and the gates of hell cannot stop or slow down the church. We love you and we thank you. And it's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.